Well, if we haven't met, my name's John. I, too, am one of the pastors here. I get to work with Brian and Sam and Pastor Paul and the rest of the staff. It's a joy uh, and privilege to do that. And today we're concluding our sermon series, which really was an Advent series, but is stretching now into Christmas a bit, called Do Not Be Afraid. And if you've been with us, you know this series is, is based on uh, what the angels typically told people right off when they uh, made a, a visit in the first couple chapters of Luke 2, be it Mary or the shepherds. Or, you know, when, when angels show up, the, the, the first line is often, do not be afraid, largely because we're freaking out uh, because we're confronted with a reality in which we have not been living and we're made to see that, hey, this stuff is actually really real, right? And I think that triggers something in us. So the common experience is fear, but God's love has the power to alleviate our fears, inviting us to a deeper trust and a more settled peace. Do not be afraid, says the angel on behalf of the Lord. So today, let's think about not being afraid to receive grace even when we experience difficulty. So I invite you now to listen to the scripture. This is the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with, it, with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, 
She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm taking a little different tack on uh, the message today. The early church gave Simeon a nickname. They called him Theodosius, uh, which meant God receiver. He literally was waiting for the Messiah and he received God when he held Jesus in his arms. That got me thinking about the way uh, Simeon received Jesus despite the difficulty of waiting. He had been waiting a while. Then that got me thinking about the other difficulties that we face as we receive Christ in, in receiving God's grace. So this message is about four difficulties we confront in receiving God's grace and how we need not be afraid to receive grace despite these difficulties, even if we're right in the middle of them now. So before we get uh, to those, uh, just a couple observations about the text. Uh, the custom in uh, the, the, the world of Israel for the Israelites was that the name would be formally given on the eighth day after birth. So for a boy, when he was taken to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth, the question would be asked, what is this child's name? And, and the parents would say, this is, the, this is the child's name. Now both Mary and Joseph had been told separately, independently, by an angel that they were to name their son Jesus. And Jesus is translated from the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yeshua is a combination of a couple different names, Yah, which is an abbreviation for the name of God, Yahweh, and Yasha, which is a verb that means to rescue or save or deliver. So the name Yeshua literally means uh, uh, God saves. The English spelling of the Hebrew Yeshua is Joshua, but when translated from Hebrew into Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the name Yeshua becomes Iesus, then when you translate that from Greek to English, in English, Jesus becomes Jesus. Thus, Yeshua and correspondingly Joshua and Jesus mean Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. So the name Jesus is both a claim and a promise. The claim is that the God who created everything, including you and me, that keeps our lives going right now, causes our hearts to beat and our, our, our brains to work, our lungs to fill with air and everything miraculously to keep functioning, that God is also a God who rescues and delivers and saves. That's the claim. The promise is that the God who created the universe and keeps everything, including you and me, going right now will rescue 
deliver, and save. It's a claim and a promise, all wrapped up in a name. And talk about a birth memory. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary standing there on the eighth day after birth, and the question is asked of them, what is the name of this child? And they look at one another, and Joseph says, his name is Jesus. Yahweh saves. God will rescue. And in their minds, they're thinking, our, our little baby, our son, is salvation, the claim and the promise of God. Talk about mind-blowing, right? So the naming of Jesus, really big deal. Um, the second thing is uh, the child named eight days afterwards, about 40 days after the birth of a son, the mother was required to go to the temple to make a couple sacrifices, a burnt offering and a sin offering. So she would go and present a lamb as a burnt offering and a dove or a pigeon as a sin offering. If a woman was poor, she could substitute a dove or a pigeon for the lamb. You can read all about that in Leviticus 12. I'm sure you'll do that later on. <laughs> Mary presented two birds meaning that she was a person of almost no financial means. Kind of telegraphs the kind of people to whom Jesus comes, doesn't it? We have to come in complete poverty of spirit. We need to acknowledge our need to come to Christ. Mary presented two birds as an offering. And, and do you see what's going on here? A, a burnt offering and a sin offering. She had to make atonement for her own sin as she became a mother. But as she brought that bird as a sin offering, Mary was holding in her arms the one who would be the offering for sin. Right? Or in the words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the purification of the mother. That was one thing. And because they were already in Jerusalem, they also presented the firstborn son. Those were the two ceremonies happening. Um, you can read about this in Exodus 13. God had rescued from the 10th plague all of the firstborn Israelites. So God said, consecrate to me every firstborn male. A family would go to the temple and present the child as the firstborn. Joseph and Mary were doing both of these things, the purification offering for Mary and the presentation of Jesus at the temple. And when they were at the temple, that's when they bumped into Simeon and Anna. We're gonna focus mostly on what Simeon said today. Not, much, not so much what he said initially, the, the part about, hey, thank you, Lord, you can now dismiss your servant in peace, which gets primary focus often when preaching this text. But what he said next to Mary, kind of the secondary statement. Here's, here's that part of the passage. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now I'm sure hoping the blessing part came before this and isn't really recorded. 
Because if that was Simeon's idea of a blessing, like, dude, I'd hate to see what your curse looks like. I mean, those are ominous, foreboding words. Of course, he's speaking prophetically. And most Christmas celebrations, I mean, in the secular world, certainly, but often for us in the church, too, most Christmas celebrations focus on the joy and the peace and the light of Christmas, which is all good. But Jesus was really clear. He said this, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he he went on to explain that he wasn't talking about violence. I mean, Tim Keller explains it well. He means, rather, that his call to allegiance brings conflict. Conflicts both among people and within people. Faith in Jesus, which is the allegiance Jesus asks of us, trust in him. Faith in Jesus includes difficulties. It's not just an easy kind of road. The first difficulty we face is the difficulty of repentance. If you, you've probably experienced this. If you read a a little portion of the Bible, a passage you're looking at over and over again, you start to see things the longer you linger there. One of the things that I noticed is I, I read what Simeon said to Mary and my, my mind reversed it. I didn't even realize it was happening. I thought Simeon said, your son will cause the rising and falling of many. Did you notice that's not what he said? He said this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many. Not the rising and falling. We think rise and fall. What does that mean? I, I think it's that there's no other way to come to Jesus than to fall from the place of thinking we've got it covered. You know, or in churchy language, like from the place of self-righteousness, uh, of spiritual achievement, of kind of religiously being better than other people. You got to fall from the place of thinking you got it covered on your own. And you got to fall all the way down to the place of complete inadequacy, total weakness, where you have nothing but need. And isn't that exactly what Jesus has caused in so many millions of people around the world since his life, death, and resurrection? The falling and rising of Jesus. Because when you fall from the place of thinking you got it covered to the place of realizing you have a pretty serious need, only from there can you rise to the new life that Jesus offers us in him, new life in Christ. I mean, Jesus said very clearly, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When confronted with the claims of Jesus, we're invited to change our thinking and to place our trust in God, our reliance in God. The word repent, biblically, it means literally change your thinking. So often, culturally, we just kind of hang on to what we think it means, which, I mean, my, my version of culturally what we think it means is Hey, stop doing the bad stuff you know you're doing. We think that's what repent means. 
Or worst case scenario, we kind of confuse it with penance and we think, hey, do some, do some good stuff to make up for the bad stuff you know you're doing. And it, that is not what the word repent means. The word repent means change your thinking. Change your view of the world. Change your understanding of what's really going on here right now. And align it with what I'm saying, says Jesus. Repent, change your thinking. Believe then means not simply give intellectual assent to certain religious claims. Believe means live according to the change in thinking. Because in the ancient world, people understood your beliefs to be made transparent by your life. Everybody could tell what you really believed by how you were living. So to believe biblically is to live according to the change of thinking in repentance. And of course, Jesus invites us to reconsider everything we thought the world really was and to come to a place of trust that he is exactly who he claimed to be, that God is really real, God is, is more than a religious idea, but a person, that God really sent Jesus because he loves people so dearly and deeply, wants everybody everywhere to come home to him change our thinking to align with that, right? That's the invitation of the gospel. But the first step, again, the repent part, is particularly difficult. I I don't know about your spiritual journey. For me, I know it was brutal. There was a war going on inside of me because I had to admit that everything I thought was going on in the world was actually completely wrong. And there was something completely different going on. I had to lay down my pride. And this is the falling that Simeon was talking about. You know, you have to acknowledge that you've got a serious problem and there's no way you're going to fix it on your own. The biblical understanding of our shared human predicament, our shared serious problem, is that our nature is sinful. We often in the church talk about sin being the problem and I think we just jump and assume that that means doing a thing wrong here or there. Sin equals bad behavior. That's, that's our interpretation of it. In one way, that's true, but the bad behavior, the doing wrong things, isn't the real problem. The real problem is that we're naturally inclined to do those things. That's what the sinful nature is about. And that natural inclination to do wrong things, to, to drift in a way we don't, we don't like, you know, that we know is wrong. That's, that's not something that you can pick up a quick fix for at Walgreens. That's not something that you can fix by adopting with your whole being some philosophy or human spirituality uh, or, or, or some human way of thinking, right? There is nothing we can do to fix that part of us. Trying to behave better and not sin will not fix that part of us. Of course, it's good to try to not do stuff that's wrong. We should all endeavor to do that. But if that's your plan A for stepping into a right relationship with God, you might as well hop on Amazon and buy a human-sized hamster wheel because that's all you're going to be doing. You're going to be running and running and running and getting exhausted and never going anywhere. There is no path to peace with God except through the difficulty of repentance, the change in thinking. But in the end, that difficulty is all grace. 
I think another mistake we make is we some, somehow conceive of repentance as like punishment. Like we've got to suffer this to get to the good stuff. It's grace from beginning to end. It's an invitation to change our thinking to align ourselves with what's really happening in the world. All right, so don't be afraid to receive the grace of repentance, the invitation to change our thinking. The next difficulty after repentance is the difficulty of, of sanctification. That's the fancy word. Simeon told Mary that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. You know, God, God knows everything. I think sometimes we like to live our lives as if we, we hope that's not true or something. But of course God knows everything. Even the stuff we want to keep secret, like our hearts are laid bare before the Lord. There are no secrets with God. And, and in a way, a sword pierces the heart of every Christ follower in the sense that we struggle with this challenge of becoming more like Jesus. That's all sanctification means. It's a process that you get ushered into after the repenting part, right? After the placing your trust in what Jesus has done for us. And it's a, it's a difficult process, right? The Apostle Paul struggled with this openly. Gladly, he shared it with all of us. Look at this from Romans 7. Here's what he said. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate... I do, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Can anybody else relate to that? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the difficulty of sanctification. The, the lifelong wrestling match. And it's super hard. There's no getting around that. There's no easy button on this thing. The 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote this, the child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. It's older language, right? It's not just for the hymns. It's for everybody. Followers of Jesus may be known by our inward warfare and our inward peace. It's both of those things. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you can relate to this, if you're a follower of Jesus, I know that you can relate to this, know that your awareness of the tension is a grace in and of itself. Because an awareness of that tension is a sign to you that God is at work in you right now. Remember what Paul wrote. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me 
through Jesus Christ. Delivers me through Jesus. Remember what the name means. Yahweh saves. Yahweh rescues. Yahweh delivers. If you're living in the tension of inward warfare and inward peace, it means God is at work in you right now, making you more like Jesus. It doesn't feel great, but that's what's happening. So don't be afraid to receive the grace of sanctification, right? It's God refining you, God making you to be more like Jesus. Go with it, don't resist it. There's tremendous strength as we get weak and admit what God's doing in us. The difficulty of repentance, the difficulty of sanctification, the difficulty of suffering. Right, Simeon told Mary that a sword would pierce her soul. Have you experienced a soul-piercing wound? If you haven't, you will. Because it's not a matter of if those great storms will come in life. It's a matter of when. It really is. They will come. Here's the deal. When they come, they feel super hard. We feel like nobody else has ever experienced this, like we can't handle it, like there's no way to get through this. It will feel super hard. It will feel like a sword just went straight through your soul. I mean, think of it. For Mary, the ultimate sword had to be the cross. I mean, all the stuff in Scripture about her treasuring up and pondering the things that were said about her son. For his 30 plus years on earth, she pondered. Remember, remember that word means doing the audit, putting the pieces together, putting all the facts, trying to get the, the full picture. But then suddenly, things took a dark and dangerous turn. Jesus was arrested, put on trial. Things were moving so quickly. Her heart was filled with fear. Then they heard the sentence was crucifixion. There, she was there at, at the cross watching her son die, and she must have been thinking, but but his name means Yahweh rescues. Nobody, including Mary, had any idea what God was up to. I mean, the standard operating expectation was the Messiah would come and deliver the Jewish people from their oppressors. That meant the Romans. Nobody had any concept that God's target was something much, much bigger. The oppressor was not the Romans. The oppressor was sin that held mastery in our lives because of our sinful nature, because of our propensity to, to bend that way, to go that way. Right? The oppressor was sin. And, and then Jesus died right in front of her and the sword went whoosh, right through her soul. This had to mean all her hopes and dreams about her son were dashed. Complete disillusionment. 
And then one commentator adds this, to that terrible disillusionment, Mary could add the unique agony and bottomless grief of outliving your child. And even in full view of all of the suffering in the world, we hold to a message that gives meaning no suffering can take away. Yes, the storms of life will come. Every one of us will suffer soul-piercing experiences and the gospel is true. Notice I did not say, but the gospel is true. Because if we throw the word but in there, it would negate the significance of all the suffering beforehand. The gospel does not negate the suffering. The suffering is real and hard and terrible. And the gospel is true. Jesus is alive right now. Because Jesus, our Savior, became a suffering servant for us, he can relate to us in every season of life, including those that are most difficult, even soul-piercing. So do not be afraid to receive grace even in the difficulty of suffering. As hard as that is to do and as hard as it is to say, there's a reality there. And finally, do not be afraid to receive the grace, to receive grace as you, as you wait. And we've all heard the cliche thing, uh, God is never late and rarely early. The whole thing, from a, from a strictly human perspective. Lots of life seemingly is lived in the in-between times. At least I experience it that way. I imagine you do too. Simeon knew this experience. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting. He was waiting. If you're like me, sometimes waiting can feel like nothing is happening. Because the gospel is true, we know that even when it feels like nothing is happening, something is happening. And we know that those times when it feels like nothing is happening are invitations to walk by faith. They are opportunities to trust God even when we don't understand, even when we don't see. Right? They are opportunities to move forward according to the light we've already received in Jesus, received in the gospel we, we believe. Now that doesn't make it easy. In fact, it's hard to keep showing up every day to your faith in Jesus, it, uh, to a life in a world where a resurrection has happened. Like, really? Every day you wake up, really? Yep. That is actually what's going on here. Now, in a big college football game this year, in which I will not name the competitors, one running back showed up with this written on the anti-glare stuff under his eyes. Second Corinthians 
5.7. Now, I'll admit I had to look it up. Didn't have this one memorized. Here's what it says. For we walk by faith, not by sight. I thought that was brilliant. For me, that was the best of any of those sports, like show your faith on your whatever your gear or whatever. I mean, I was like, that was great for me. Don't be afraid to receive grace even in the difficulty of waiting. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. Meaning it's okay to keep walking when you can't see. It's okay to keep walking when you can't see. You really can trust the Lord in that. Life is marked by many difficulties, the difficulty of repentance, the difficulty of becoming more like Jesus, sanctification, the difficulty of suffering, the difficulty of waiting. But remember, Simeon was called Theodosius, the God receiver. He received God's grace in Jesus. So this Christmas season, do not be afraid to receive God's grace even as you experience difficulty. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you did not wait for us to come to you, but instead you came to us. You came to us at the moment we were most distant from you. Even while we were in our sins, you died for us. You became one of us. You moved into our neighborhood in Jesus. Thank you, God, that you're like that. Thank you that you're the, the father of the prodigal who's looking down the driveway just waiting for the first sign that we're turning toward home and, and you come running to us. Uh, there's, there's a lot of us here today and we're all in different places. We simply present ourselves to you where we are, Lord, and we ask you to meet us in that space, in that place. And Lord, I ask that as you meet us in the places we are, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would help us in the difficulties we're experiencing, and that you would help us grow to be more like Jesus, not just for our own comfort, but a but for this world that, that desperately needs you. Help us cooperate with what you're doing in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.